the world we know is changing. I'm Moira Gunn, and welcome to Biotech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with University of Chicago professor Dr. Neil Shubin, whom you may remember from his earlier books, Your Inner Fish and the Universe Within. He's here today with some assembly required, decoding four billion years of life from ancient fossils to DNA. We learn that our very own DNA is a virus graveyard. And now, Neil Shubin. Well, Neil, welcome back to Tech Nation. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, you've been cracking rocks open and looking for fossils the greater part of your career. I guess we could say your life. Which instance of discovery surprised you from the first crack, so to speak? Yeah, the one that surprised me from the first crack was probably not the one I'm most known for, but it was uh, on a mountaintop in East Greenland in the early 1990s. We were looking for uh, the earliest mammals, and these are tiny things, probably about the jaw a centimeter long. And I was just randomly cracking rock because I had found some scales actually in the rock. I cracked it, and there was a tiny little jaw. Looked at it under my hand lens, and boom, did not did it not have the teeth of one of the earliest mammals. So, you know, rocks have the power to surprise, and that uh, really did it for me. During your career, of course, there's been the incredible scientific discovery of DNA, DNA tools, DNA analytics. How did the discovery of DNA and the ability to work with it change how you did your science? Yeah, it was quite amazing. And it happened, it happened kind of early on. I was in graduate school and I was training to become a paleontologist. And I was training to really study the history of life, in particular, great changes, great transformations in the history of life. And so I was learning all these techniques about how to lead expeditions, how to find fossils, you know, how to find fossil intermediates, say, between creatures that live in water and those that walk on land, you know, all that kind of thing. And I remember coming back, from, this was in like the mid late 1980s. I remember coming back from one of my early expeditions as a student, uh, and somebody had piled some molecular biology papers on my um, desk. <laughs> and these papers were showing that people had found DNA that helps build the body of flies, which doesn't sound like much, but then in other papers, they revealed that Human bodies, fish bodies, reptile bodies all have versions of these same things too. And what they're doing is help build their bodies. So it's sort of at that moment, I guess it's like 1987, 1988, that I realized the power of molecular biology. And it's just been that way ever since for the entire field, not just me. I mean, it's just like these techniques have gotten so powerful, so cheap. So, so we're so able to apply them to different kinds of species that it changes the kinds of questions you can ask as an evolutionary biologist. So my toolkit, as well as a lot of other paleontologists of my generation, um, now extends from geology and cracking rocks to studying cells and DNA and how DNA is uh, controlled during development from egg to adult. So fossils, which are cracking rocks to see, do they ever contain DNA? They can, yeah. I mean, certainly, as you get in, as we've discovered, say, in Neanderthals and their close relatives, Denisovans, sort of in the human evolutionary record, in particular for more recent sorts of things, you know, fossils that are on the order of, say, oh, 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 years old. Now, we sort of lose the DNA when we get to things that I work on, say, the earliest fish to walk on land. One of these fossils we discovered actually in the Canadian Arctic. Uh, that's about 375 million years old. Um, and by that point, the DNA is all gone. 
That being said, what we can do is, you know, we can ask a different kind of question. I don't need fossils to do it. I could say, look at the genes that make the limb of a mouse or a human or a frog. And I can compare them to the genes that build the fin of a fish. And we can ask the question, what's the same and what's different? What's different in the genetic instructions that build our bodies from those that build the bodies of fish and amphibians? And that's a very powerful question. You know, we don't need fossils to do that. And we can begin to see the catalog of genetic changes that make bodies different in evolution. Now, what happens in looking back, you're looking at the entire record of what is living from one point to one point to one point. And you have to make a leap from this point to that point. You always don't have the information in between. What are some of the incorrect leaps that have been made over time? Well, we have, you know, information's all imperfect, you know, whether you're dealing with the present or in the past. And so the question is, how do you build robust hypotheses of how creatures are related to one another and how creatures have changed over time? And there have been all kinds of misleading things and dead ends and so forth. Some of the biggest ones were in trying to reconstruct the tree of life to try to understand, you know, which species are more closely to which others, you know, the family tree. Um, some of the earliest efforts were actually um, really flawed in many ways because they only relied on one set of data. They might have only relied on fossils or only relied on anatomy, you know. And now that we have the DNA record, that gives us some, you know, and, and that there's, you know, billions of bases in DNA in, every, in most creatures, you know, that's a huge library of evolutionary change that we can now leverage to ask those questions. So certainly there have been a lot of missteps. And these are missteps not only because, you know, we were lacking data in the past, but also because the analytic methods didn't really exist to integrate different lines of data. You know, so the, our progress with understanding DNA has gone hand in hand with our progress in the computational methods to study DNA and to compare it among different creatures. You know, so it didn't happen in a vacuum. When you think of the computational power we have now, the sequencing power we have now, the experimental power to manipulate DNA or to move genes among species to test their function, you know, you put all that together and all of a sudden you have this great constellation of approaches that can tell us about the history of life. So there are many false steps as you develop new technologies. That's to be expected, you know. Well, I like how you say the the information is never perfect. You can't, <laughs> it's like there's always more, there's more. And so you still have to make leaps. And you write, we tend to fill the gaps in our knowledge with our own biases, usually some combination of hope, expectation, or fear. Fear? Well, you think about it. What's the unknown to a lot of us? The unknown can be scary. The unknown can be compelling. But, you know, when you think about science, science is a leap into the unknown, right? I don't want to over-dramatize it, but that's what it is. You're going where people haven't been before if you're doing it right. And that's going to be loaded with the unknown. You're going to paint with your preconceived expectations because you're human. <laughs> you know, you're going to have your biases or I'm going to have my biases. I'm going to have, you know, all sorts of expectations that are based on what I've experienced before. But that may not apply to this new unknown. Uh, and the other is we tend to fill it with suspicion, sometimes fear. You think about how people just in general approach the unknown. You know, I feel that more uh, very acutely, not just in science, but, you know, you remember I do a lot of field work and I work up in, you know, the Arctic or I work in Antarctica. And these are places where there's a geographic unknown. 
and where I have unknowns about the weather or the climate or glaciers or polar bears. And I'm, I've, you know, I spend half my time painting the unknown with fear and you know things like that and trying to overcome that. Personal fear at the moment. Yeah, that's kind of that's pretty visceral, <laughs> like experimental stuff. Um, but that, I mean, but that's a human thing, and we have to, you know, and we're, we encounter this a lot, particularly in the age of social media where social media is just one giant confirmation bias engine. You know, we have to overcome our confirmation bias and our very human, you know, biases, which actually serve us very well in a lot of contexts. It's just they cause us to misfunction in a lot of others. Another quote I love is from uh, Lillian Hellman, the um, uh, nothing starts. What does that quote say? Tell us again. Yeah, so Lillian Hellman, I was just finishing my my new book, Some Assembly Required, and I was reading an autobiography just randomly of Lillian Hellman, who was a great playwright, right? But she was also, you know, brought up to the House of American uh, Activities Committee. She was a very famous uh, communist. And she had this line in looking at her own life, very hard living life um, woman. Um, she said, nothing, of course, ever begins when you think it does. And I remember reading that quote thinking, wow. That's just not the story of Lillian Hellman's life. That's the story of evolution in the last four billion years, you know, because really nothing ever begins when you think it does in evolution. I mean, if you think that, you know, in evolution that lungs arose, you know, as creatures evolved to walk on land or, or feathers arose uh, as creatures evolved to fly, you'd be in really good company. Uh, but you would be entirely wrong, and we've known that <laughs> for over a century. <laughs> Nothing, I mean, the great inventions in the history of life always precede the revolutions they're associated with. They came about earlier in different contexts, and they really, so much of evolution is repurposing structures that already exist, finding new functions for them. Lungs arose in fish as they lived in water to help them breathe air when the oxygen supply and water um, dropped. Feathers arose in dinosaurs as thermoregulation and, and courtship displays, and then later were used in flight as creatures took to the air. Now, that's the story of invention after invention, whether it's anatomy or genes or, you know, you name it. It's, it's sort of writ large. And this is part of what we're talking about with the famous paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould, um, the 2% of a wing problem. Explain that. Yeah. So, you know, you think about it this way. Um, you know, one of Darwin's biggest critics after Darwin published The Origin of Species was this guy, Mavart. And he was really remarkable. He managed to piss everybody off. Um, he... Um, <laughs> <laughs> at the time, he just went after everybody. He went after his parents. He went after authority. He just just hated authority. He went after the Catholic Church, by the way. He went after everybody. And so, um, but he had a really cogent criticism of Darwin, and that was, look, if you think that you know, uh, flight arose from land living creatures, or uh, or that land living creatures evolved from fish, so many things have to change and sink that it's impossible. No, moreover that what good is half of a feature, say half of a wing or 2% of a wing, uh, why, you know, how would it ever evolve? Because the intermediate stages would be useless. And that was a really cogent criticism of Darwin. And Darwin took that very seriously. So, so Darwin wrote his first edition of um, Origin of Species. Uh, but in his sixth, he actually addressed Mavart. And he did it in a way that Stephen Jay Gould later described as the 2% of a wing problem. You know, what good is 2% of the wing? And the way he answered it was two ways. First was that 2% of a wing is better for some functions than 1% of a wing or 0.5% of a wing. 
it may not be for flight. It may be for, you know, uh, jumping and staying in the air and longer jumps and whatever. But the other was that much of evolution happens by changing the function of features that already exist. That is, that the first creatures to walk on land evolved from fish that already had many of those features that allowed them to walk on land as fish, <laughs> you know? So lungs and, and as we later, my team later showed, arms and fingers and toes and these sorts of things originally arose in fish living in aquatic ecosystems, living in swampy environments, such that when the shift came to walk on land, it didn't really involve too many new structures. It involved using old structures in new ways, you know, using the old to make the new, repurposing, you know, which is what every, you know, which what we do in, in life when we tinker. And that's how um, evolution acts. And this is sort of like Darwin's response to Mavart. And as that was summarized as your question revealed by, by Steve, Steve Gould, um, you know, a century and a half later. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Neil Shubin, a professor of orgasmal. I hate this. I've been practicing. I wish all <laughs> morning. Orgasmal. It's organismal. <laughs> organismal biology and anatomy at the University of Chicago. You likely remember him from his earlier books, Your Inner Fish and the Universe Within. He's here today with some assembly required decoding 4 billion years of life from ancient fossils to DNA. Okay, so what is this organismal? Did I even do it right then, biology? Yeah, anatomy. got it right. Yeah, there's those two There's two <laughs> letters in that where if you mess them up, it takes you in a whole new direction. Oh, <laughs> in yeah. the department oh, that would be yeah. the most popular in every university on the planet. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, organismal biology and anatomy is studying, you know, organisms themselves, you know, integrating molecules and cells and development and neural systems to understand how organisms work. So it's um, it's the sort of focus of the department. It's pretty simple with a tough name, but it's a lot of fun <laughs> yes, in a cocktail party. I think it needs a new name. I know, how that, I know how that works. Now, one would think that becoming a scientist is very prescriptive. You know, do well in science in high school, you know, science fairs in middle school, take it as a major in college, find yourself a nice university, do your PhD work, and then maybe a postdoc and perhaps a a professorship. It's all very well laid out. And then there's your colleague, Vinnie Lynch. Tell us about Vinnie Lynch. Well, Vinnie was sort of an impressive uh, human. So Vinnie, you know, was a an undistinguished, to put it mildly, student uh, for uh, as, as a child. Um, and he struggled in school. And like so many of us, myself included, Vinnie uh, was fortunate to have a, a wonderful teacher who saw what made him click. And he saw that what Vinny really needed was to focus not on the books and the classroom, but to focus on nature, where his passions really truly were. And what happened is that focus of that teacher in elementary school really kindled his interest in natural history uh, and later in evolution. And then Vinny trained to be a molecular biologist to study evolution, and he carried that passion with him ever since. So he's a, he's a molecular biologist studying DNA and proteins and to some extent cells. Um, but he is, at first and foremost, that grown child who loved animals and plants and natural history. And it was really due to a teacher that stimulated that interest, you know, and that, that just really speaks to the importance of great teaching, by the way. It does. It reminds me of my oldest son who uh, got advanced placement in, in high school into science. And 
Uh, so here, here he is with a freshman with all these these sophomores, and I'm just thinking, you know, what is going on? I'm getting a call from the teacher. It's like the third week of school, and she says, he comes up with more questions than I can even answer if I knew the answer, and I was just like, okay, so he's being disruptive. You know, the parent, you know, she says, we got to nurse this boy through to graduate school. <laughs> it's like, that's a teacher. <laughs> well, that's... I mean, it speaks to the, the importance of teaching and the, speak, the importance of the human beings doing that teaching who really see what makes people click and, and finding the right path for them. I was very fortunate myself to have teachers that fostered curiosity in high school, and I wouldn't be a scientist without that, actually. Now, uh, since we're talking about Vinny, we can go down to decidual stromal cells, but let's talk about jumping genes. Yeah, so one of the great discoveries uh, in you know the past you know seventy five years about DNA is that it's not just a static you know double helix that we read about. What happens is it's roiling with change. That is, there are some pieces of DNA that make copies of themselves and land in other spots of the genome. They call them jumping genes, and there are different ways that it can happen. There are different kinds, different flavors of them. They were these were um, initially discovered by Barbara McClintock, who wrote a paper decades ago uh, describing these. That was so ahead of its time that nobody understood it, and it got no mention basically until people started discovering jumping genes in other species. She was working on corn, and they discovered them in mice, and they found that it's this is just a very profound part of the genome. She eventually ended up winning the Nobel Prize. But to back to the story about Vinny and the stromal cells, there's Vinny's interested was interested in the origin of pregnancy. That is, if you think about what makes mammals different from, say, reptiles, most reptiles, some have this, it's pregnancy. That is, we don't you know we don't hatch from eggs. You know, uh, uh, in nests, uh, we are carried in the womb, and there's pregnancy where the the fetus uh, lives with uh, inside the mother, feeding and getting immune system and so forth from the from the mother. Well, do you think about the origin of that? The origin of pregnancy. As we're back to the problem, the two percent of a wing problem, or the Mavart problem with uh, Darwin. So many genes are involved in the origin of pregnancy that if you think about that. How many mutations would it take to, for the for pregnancy to evolve? It never would happen. You'd need thousands of cha genetic changes to bring about this change. Well, what Vinny showed is in looking at these cells, he found that a lot of the genetic elements that are turned on during certain phases of pregnancy are actually tethered to jumping genes. So that it didn't take thousands of mutations for the origin of, of pregnancy. What Vinny hypothesized was that it maybe was a small handful of them that happened near jumping genes, and then the jumping genes transported these mutations all over the DNA of, our, of our, one of our reptilian ancestors. So that jumping genes are a way to bring new types of information across the genome. So that one or a small number of mutations can actually be amplified into hundreds, if not thousands, by the action of these jumping genes over time. And so that's it's really profound stuff because what it's showing is that you know evolutionary can change can happen very rapidly in some cases, but importantly we have to change our conception of DNA. It's not this static molecule. It's always opening and closing. Ports of it are jumping around and duplicating. It's roiling with change, and that the way it roils with change actually is a big part of you know the origin of new things in evolution. That's the sort of a factory for evolutionary change. Now let's add viruses. 
Let's. No. So in this last year and a half, we've been adding viruses. It's been quite the viral year in a lot of ways. And we're so used to thinking about things like SARS-CoV-2, you know, uh, COVID-19, the, the, the virus that causes um, COVID-19, you know, we're so used to thinking viruses in a very negative way. I'm going to offer a slightly different perspective, and that's based on one of my colleagues at the University of Utah, Jason Shepard. So the viruses, you know, viruses uh, have a lot of abilities here, and some ty some types of viruses, not all, but some types, can actually enter the genome. SARS-CoV-2 does not enter the genome. This is a different kind of virus, RNA virus, but some of these viruses actually can enter the genome. And so it's a funny story, but it's, it's one that speaks to how science happens. Jason's a neurobiologist. He doesn't study viruses. Uh, so Jason's interested in memory, right? So he was studying memory, and he was studying a, a gene and a protein that are involved in memory in mice. It's called ARC, A-R-C. And he was doing what any good you know, molecular biologist does. He isolated the gene and the protein, studied the protein, how it works in the brain, and so forth. And so he was looking at ARC protein under the microscope, and he like had to do a double take on it. It, it. it was like it formed these little capsules, microscopic capsules, right? And so he's like, wait a minute, I've seen this before. And he pulled out a microbiology textbook and he couldn't tell the difference between the little capsules of the arc protein he saw under his microscope and uh, the capsules formed by uh, HIV, uh, the virus that causes AIDS. He's like, wait a minute. So he uh, works in a medical school, so he invited some of his virology colleagues over to look under his microscope a couple weeks later, and particularly some colleagues who work on HIV. And he said, hey, what's, uh, what, what are you looking at under the microscope? And they said, well, that's HIV. I know that. Anybody knows that. It causes AIDS, right? And he's like, nope, sorry, ARC. It's a memory gene in mice. And they're like, what? So they analyzed it in more detail, and it turns out that ARC, the protein made by this gene, um, has elements in it that are viral, that have the signature of a certain type of virus, a retrovirus. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with University of Chicago professor Dr. Neil Shubin about some assembly required, decoding four billion years of life from ancient fossils to DNA. It turns out that ARC, the protein made by this gene, um, has elements in it that are viral, that have the signature of a certain type of virus, a retrovirus. And they traced ARC uh, distribution in animals, and they came up with a hypothesis that is sometime in the very distant past, probably about 360 million years ago, based on the comparison they did, there was a virus that entered the body of one of our distant ancestors. It's entered the DNA, and then was commandeered. Instead of causing infections by some mechanism unknown, it was what we call domesticated, and that instead of you know, causing disease, it was engineered for a new function, put to good uses, if you will, domesticated, right? Um, like <laughs> and it turns out that this sort of viral entry for new inventions in the genome is not just in ARC. It's in other proteins, like placental proteins. There's one called secession. Um, there are others as well. In fact, the list is growing. So it does appear our relationship with viruses is um, very complex. That is, you know, and, and, and you know, we're always at war with them, right? They're, you know, they're trying to get into the body, and they basically have one function: they, to make more copies of themselves and to turn us into viral factories. Every now and then, we win the battle <laughs> and turn one of those uh, <laughs> kinds of particular kinds of viruses into something useful. In this case, ARC or syncytion or these other proteins. So you're not actually just your parents' DNA. You're also their parents behind them. And then all of these commandeered uh, viral invaders over millennia. 
That's right. And if you look at our genome, it's like like nine percent of it is old viruses that that attacked and got either domesticated or some of them were knocked out as the signature. So our DNA is actually a viral graveyard in many ways, if you, when you look at it. And in fact, most of our DNA is not our genes, right? If you define gene as a section of DNA that codes for proteins, I think that's only 2% of the DNA. The rest of it are some of these jumping genes, they're repetitive sequences, they're even fossilized, if you will, um, uh, viruses uh, sitting in the DNA. And now we get to one of my favorites, palindromes. Yeah, palindromes. Yeah, well, that's a great story, right? I mean, I mean, that's Nobel Prize level stuff, probably multiple Nobel Prize levels. And so CRISPR-Cas, when you talk about that pattern in the genome, I just love how that was discovered because it's a great story about the ecosystem of science, right? When you think about you know, how CRISPR-Cas was discovered, well, it was discovered by people working on salt marshes in Spain. You know, and they were trying to think about, well, how do these microbes adapt to these hypersaline environments in salt marshes? Well, they started to sequence them and they found these crazy, you know, structures in the in the sequence of the of the genome of these palindromes. And then, you know, one thing led to another, and then people realized, well, hey, maybe this uh, this palindromic piece is um, part of a larger system, and that, in fact, which they discovered, that's a larger system for, you know, bacterial defense. And then others sort of applied this system for bacterial defense to edit genomes. I mean, what a story about science. It's happened over several decades, and it just shows you how the power of basic science. And let me just jump in here and say, hey, you guys all know palindromes from the Sunday paper, or... Sunday digital paper these days, you know, it's uh, uh, it, the whatever letters go one way, then go reverse as you continue, or as you used in the book, Hannah, the name Hannah, it's H-A-N-N-A-H. These are literally structures of genes, which are a, stri- a, a pattern one way, and then they're followed by a pattern another way. So it's just in reverse. Yeah, and these palindromes were really sort of indicators for you know the, the discoveries that ultimately led to discovery of CRISPR-Cas, which was the you know the genome editing uh, protein. And the, the CRISPR-Cas genome editing has really opened up a whole new world for us in the evolution piece of part of the world, but also you know for for bio, life sciences and other sciences uh, more broadly. It's uh, God, you think gosh, you think about it, you know the the earliest paper I saw was 2013, 2012. And, you know, that, that was a game-changing moment for, for many of us in the field that we realized we can not only edit the genome of species, but we can edit the genome of different species, and we could do so relatively rapidly and cheaply. Um, yeah, that has been just such a, a, such a transformative um, moment in biology and other fields. That discovery of palindromes there actually brought me right over to how we, uh, we, we encrypt uh, certain patterns in digitally because it used to be, well, we'll just repeat it a few times, but then someone wanting to mess with you would just find that repetition and then change it. So we found that if we occasionally encrypted it in reverse, they would have to analyze all the bits that are out there to, to, to find it. And so I'm thinking, did the, did the, DNA get smart? <laughs> well, look, DNA has been mutating, roiling with change for billions of years. And it's been finding solutions we can never dream of, right, in that space, because it's always mutating and natural selection is acting on it. It's an evolvable system that is going to find just brilliant solutions to environmental or biological problems. And time and again, 
we can learn so much just from looking at the natural world and, and the evolutionary solutions that have happened over billions of years. And some of them, you know, are just truly um, amazing, you know, <laughs> and then, you know, our human brain would never have come up with them probably in our lifetime. Uh, and so setting up evolvable systems is a great way to explore new space, right? Having variation and selection. People are doing it in lots of different fields. But we have to talk about Vinny's tattoos. You gotta give them that. <laughs> <laughs> Vinny's tattoos. Vinny's tattoos are, you know, I used to see them at the gym all the time, and it's, you know, it's basically all the animals I've loved before. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, Vinny's tattoos are a record of his work, um, which is a beautiful thing. So many, actually, so many of my colleagues have that. I used to have a graduate student who, every species he'd worked on, he'd, uh, he'd get a new tattoo of that species. And, um, and I get, you know, we've discovered this, one of the earliest creatures to walk on land, a fossil known as Tiktaalik rosea. Oh, barely a month goes by where I don't get a, um, somebody emailing me or zapping me on social media with a Tiktaalik tattoo. So go science, go tattoos, go science tattoos. You can't tell a scientist by how they look. They <laughs> just right. turn out to be. <laughs> Neil, always a pleasure. You're always welcome on Tech Nation. And, and thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. My guest today is University of Chicago Professor Neil Shubin. His book is Some Assembly Required, Decoding Four Billion Years of Life from Ancient Fossils to DNA. It's published by Vintage. and It's now out in paperback. Listen to more biotech podcasts at biotechnation.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Biotech Nation is a regular feature of the weekly public radio program, Tech Nation. Listen to the full show via podcast or on your local public radio station. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.